Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Tonight we will be looking at Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 happens to include one of the most well-known and therefore one of the most ignored passages in all the Old Testament. We are called a sovereign grace church. We talk about sovereignty a lot. And what we mean by that is that God can do whatever God wants to do. He can do it whenever he wants to do it, wherever he wants to do it, with whoever he wants to do it, as many times as he wants to do it. And he doesn't do what he doesn't want to do, and you can't make him do anything he doesn't want to do. He does or doesn't do whatever he wants or doesn't want to do according to his own good pleasure and his own good will. And our opinion on that just doesn't matter. And that is said throughout the Bible. Whether you start in Genesis and you find God telling Abram, leave your country. I'm going to take you to a new place. I'm going to let you know when you're there. I'm going to give you all of this land in perpetuity, you and your descendants after you. Well, based on what? Based on God's decision to simply do that. You look at the book of Job, arguably the oldest book in the Old Testament, and all you see in the last several chapters is God declaring the many, many different aspects of his absolute sovereignty. I'm in charge of everything, and you're not. He even challenges Job and says, when you can start to do the kind of things I can do, then I'll admit that your own right hand can save you. So sovereignty is in the oldest parts of the Bible, and you get all the way through the Gospels, God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty. You get into the book of Revelation and eschatological portions of the Bible, and it's God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty. Well, you're not going to find a grander statement of God's sovereignty than you're going to find in Daniel chapter 4. And that, as I said, is one of the reasons that people seem to skip over it. Because if you take seriously what Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel chapter 4, there is just no way that you can conclude that men have any kind of a will or any kind of good works, anything that they can contribute to their own salvation. God is absolutely sovereign over the planet, over everything that happens on the planet, and over everyone from the kings of the earth down to the lowest of the low. He is in charge of all those. And so people wrestle with this chapter among the uh, higher critics who tried so hard to late date Daniel. This was also a passage that they took issue with by pointing out that Daniel chapter 4 changes voices. In the first three chapters of Daniel, Daniel is writing in the first person. And then at the beginning of what we call chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, the voice changes. It's Nebuchadnezzar's voice. Nebuchadnezzar did write first person his story of what happened to him because he did go through a period of madness. And interestingly, during his period of madness, those that were around him did not seek to replace him as king. And in fact, there is every indication that they kind of secured him. They kind of kept him under wraps, as it were, until the sickness had passed. So knowing that the end of chapter 3 says that I, Nebuchadnezzar, make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way, the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. It's only natural that if the king then supplied a story about how God overwhelmed his ego, his pride, his arrogance 
brought him down and taught him a lesson in sovereignty so that the king would write that to support his declaration that Yahweh, the God of Daniel, the God of the Jews, the one of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, well, then it only makes sense that if he had had something as cataclysmic as chapter 4 happened to him and he wrote about it, of course Daniel would include it. But it is written, again, by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, first person. And it's going to start out again with Nebuchadnezzar having a dream. Fortunately, this time around, he's not quite as hard to deal with as he was in the first dream he had when he told all his magicians and his soothsayers, tell me the dream and then I'll believe that you can tell me the interpretation. And so all the Chaldeans and the magicians and the soothsayers all said, well, that's impossible. We can't possibly know what your dream is. So this time around, he's going to at least admit to what the dream is, but then he wants a proper interpretation of what it means. So he calls Daniel, who by this time is in a fair bit of authority. So when he calls the Chaldeans, the magicians, the soothsayers, Daniel apparently is not among them. He's not with them. So then the king calls for the chief of the magicians, a title that is given to Daniel, because by now Nebuchadnezzar is well aware that Daniel can interpret dreams. And God has given him yet again a dream of his own insanity, but then there is also the promise of restoration. Now, when you see these kinds of prophecies, these kinds of predictions on God's part, it's really, really risky stuff. And I keep pointing out, and I'm going to do it throughout the rest of the book of Daniel because there are so many prophecies coming up. Prophecy is really, really risky business. No other organized religion on the face of the planet has the kind of prophecy that the Bible has. Because prophecy is something you can check. You can actually see, well, did it happen? Did it take place? If it didn't, that's either a false prophet or, more importantly, evidence of a false god. Because he has said something that's going to happen that then did not happen. So, in the book of Daniel, we're going to see again a prophecy of Nebuchadnezzar's madness. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, is writing this after the fact, but he's not afraid to say, Daniel interpreted my dream to predict the very thing that I went through. So here's Nebuchadnezzar, the unassailable king and head of Babylon and all the surrounding areas and provinces. Here he is admitting that the God of the Bible is the God of prophecy. And I don't want you to miss that. Because, as I said, other religions don't do this. I don't know how many of you have ever read the Koran. Have you ever read the Koran? Okay, a lot of prophecy in there? No. No, there's no prophecy. Anybody in here read the Bhagavad Gita? Gita? There you go. A lot of prophecy in there? No, there's no prophecy in there. Anybody in here spent a lot of time reading about, uh, there are several books about Baha'i. There isn't a central book, but read any Baha'i literature and uh, scripture. No, there's no prophecy. There's none of that. And yet the Bible time and time again says, this will happen. And it's because God is the God of, of not only the past, but the God of the future. And God does not simply predict what's going to happen in a weird Gene Dixon sort of way. My reference to Gene Dixon, I'm sure about four of us, the old guys, we all got that. The young folks have no idea. You don't know who Gene Dixon is, do you? I feel so old. I know. God doesn't do that. He doesn't predict the future in some kind of I know what's going to happen way and it may sometimes and it may not other times. So far, God's batting average is perfect. He's batting a thousand across the board. Everything he has said is going to happen has in fact happened, save the eschatological stuff, which is why I'm so certain that the promises he has put out into the future are absolutely going to happen. 
with the specificity that he wrote about them, that he predicted about them, because all of the past prophecies have all come to their fruition exactly as God said they were going to. And that's because, we got to start reading soon, it's a long chapter. It's because, see, when I was in Los Angeles, I was in a church out there with Tom that was a very Arminian church. But the pastor out there was very big on prophecy. He would talk about the prophecies of God. And he was good with the book of Revelation, talking about the way that God could predict the future. But he seemed to say that God looked down the long telescope of time and knew what was going to happen as if what was happening was independent of God. God simply knew it. And whenever he would talk about those prophetic things, I kept thinking, that sounds like a God who's in charge of the future. As I became more and more familiar with the Bible, I saw that God said of himself that he did not predict the future. He declared the future. I declare things. I call things that are not as if they were. And so because he has all the power, because he has all the might, because he is sovereign, he has the ability to say what is going to happen because he's the one that makes it happen. So he's not simply saying, I know what's going to happen. He's saying, I'm going to make this happen. That's the kind of prophecy that you find in the Bible. I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring this about. I'm going to establish this. And because it's God and his almighty power that lays behind the prophecies, the prophecies can't help but come true. Otherwise, God isn't really all-powerful. He's just mostly powerful. But if human beings don't cooperate with him, then he can't get things done. But if he's sovereign and all-powerful, then he can do whatever he wants all the time. And that means he can say, this is what I'm going to do. Not right now, but I'm going to do it soon. That's why I could tell Abraham, when Abraham said, how do I know this land is going to be mine? How do I know I'm going to have offspring? How do I know that the promises you've made me are true? God tells him the next 400 years of human history. Was that because God knew the history? Or was it because God was declaring what the history was going to be? You're going to die. Your descendants are going to go into a land where they're not known. They're going to serve there for 400 years. Then I'm going to bring them out with greater numbers and greater substance than they went in with. And I'm going to bring them back and give them this very land. That's exactly what God did. But he talked about it 400 years in advance. So that's why the prophets have such accuracy. The prophets who simply say what God says aren't predicting that they know in some sort of sort of cosmic way, I know the future. They are saying what God says as he declares the future. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. We got to start reading. Daniel 4, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all the peoples, the nations, the men of every language that live in all the earth may peace May your peace abound. Okay, that's your first indication that this is something Nebuchadnezzar wrote to everybody. And that's why Daniel would include it in his writing. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and the wonders which the Most High God has done for me. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had a whole pantheon of gods. Babylonian gods were plentiful. Daniel and His three Hebrew friends were all named after Babylonian gods when they were taken to Babylon. There were a great many Babylonian gods, and in a moment you're going to see that when Nebuchadnezzar speaks of Daniel, he still doesn't speak of him as the judge of God, God's judge, Daniel, that's what that means. He still says, who I named Belteshazzar. You hear the bell in there? That's one of the gods of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar, even though he sees that the God of the Israelites seems superior to all the other gods, he still speaks of him as the most high God without eliminating the possibility that there still might be other gods. 
it seemed good to me to declare the signs and the wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Unbelievable statement coming from Nebuchadnezzar. He was the great high king. He was the one that was called the king of kings. He had other kings that were subservient to his kingship. And yet he says there's a kingdom that belongs to the most high God. That kingdom has no end. Earthly kingdoms all have ends. But the kingdom of God, a supernatural kingdom, I argue a future earthly kingdom, we're going to continue to argue that as we go through Daniel's many visions. That kingdom is not going to have any end. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. All of the previous kings who ever ruled on planet Earth had a generation. They had a lifespan. They had a period of time where they were on the planet. But Nebuchadnezzar says, as many generations as mankind ever has, his kingdom is over them all. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. In other words, he was taxing everybody around him like mad. People were bringing him plenty of wealth. Plenty of cattle, plenty of horses, plenty of armies. All he had to do was be in his palace and he was flourishing. That'd be like me saying, I sat at home today and got rich. Now, despite what people will try to tell you on the Internet, that doesn't work. Okay, I thought that was a whole lot funnier myself. (laughs) I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, And the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them. That had to have been a great relief to them. When they come in and he says, I've had another dream, they had to all be going, "Uh uh-oh. Oh, no, this doesn't go well. When the king has dreams, he demands things from us that end up, and I'll destroy your house and turn it into dung, and I'll kill all your family. He starts out by saying, I'm going to tell you what the dream is. But they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. See that? According to the name of my Babylonian God. I've named Daniel after my God. There's the most high God, the God of Daniel, the God of the Hebrew children. But then there's my God. So according to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, plural, and I related the dream to him because Nebuchadnezzar believed in a pantheon of gods. So he could say that the spirit of the gods was in him. O Belteshazzar, verse 9, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, Tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen, along with its interpretation. Now, these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. 
I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, a watcher. Now, this is language that you're only going to see a couple times in the Old Testament. We know that watcher means angel, somebody that God has sent, an emissary of God who, who views what's going on on the planet. There are apocryphal books, like the book of Enoch, that refer to the watchers. And so we know that it's fairly common language. The watchers are apparently angelic beings who are there doing God's bidding and watching what's happening on the planet. It's one of the places that is the basis for the idea of there being um, guardian, angels. guardian angels. I was going to say protective angels, and I knew that wasn't right. The guardian angel concept comes from this idea that we are surrounded by watchers. So as I lay on my bed, behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree, chop off its branches, strip off its foliage, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds flee from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it, in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched. Now notice the hymn there. Up till now we've been talking about a tree. The tree was large. The tree was cut down. Leave the root of the tree. Now we know that it's about a person. But let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. And let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Now, the best estimate of seven periods of time is seven years. Seven days or seven weeks wouldn't accomplish all this. And even seven months, I don't think, is long enough for his nails and his hair to grow like eagle's talons and eagle's wings. This is probably a seven-year period we're talking about here. This sentence is by the decree of the watchers. And the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. And he bestows it on whom he wishes, and he sets over it the lowliest of men. That's a declaration of God's sovereignty, that God does whatever he wants, and he's going to make Nebuchadnezzar mad for the distinct purpose of making sure that the living humans know that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows that realm of mankind on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, in a little while, we're going to see, starts bragging about his own authority, and he starts looking at Babylon and saying, isn't this great Babylon which my hand has built? This is the reason God has to take him down a few pegs. So that he comes to the point where he's at the end of himself, then God is going to restore him to his kingdom so that he recognizes that he himself is the lowliest of men as well. That he has no inherent capability. That without God, he would not be ruling. But in the realms of the earth, God gives those realms to whoever he wants. Which, given our modern political climate, is good to know. It's good to know that God is still in the business of giving the realms of men to whoever he wants. And then they end up, whether they like it or not, serving his purpose. So this is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream 
or its interpretation alarm you? Okay, now you can see why Daniel would be alarmed. He's about to tell Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to go nuts. You're not going to be ruling over men. Even though you think you're pretty grand and pretty great, God is going to take you down to nothing, to you're eating grass like a beast, and until you're just out of your mind. And this is Nebuchadnezzar, who will turn people's houses into dung heaps at a whim. And Daniel's understanding what the interpretation of the dream is, and he's afraid to tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream means. So Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. If only this applied to somebody else, but it doesn't. It's, it's applying to you. But knowing that he's talking to the king, he makes sure first to say, okay, you're, you're great, and, and I'm sorry, and I wish this was someone else. Just don't hurt me. <laughs> just, just don't do anything. The tree that you saw, which became large and great and strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. And in that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time have passed over. This is the interpretation. Okay, so let's go back and talk about this stump and these roots. Typically, if you're going to get rid of a tree, if you're going to completely get rid of a tree, the last thing you do is get rid of the stump. I've hired people before to come get rid of the stump in my front yard after I had a tree come down in a storm. You don't want the stump to remain there because I've left a stump in my yard before and it, it grows like a weird bush. It gets very strange. And the idea of the brass band around it, there are lots of different commentaries and opinions about it. And whether it has to do with the stump itself or whether it has to do with the man himself, it seems to be a little bit of both. By putting a brass ring around the stump of the tree, it's not going to grow outward the way that I just described. It's not going to branch out sideways and grow low. As it regrows, because it has roots, it's getting nutrition, as it grows again, it's going to grow up. That's the purpose of the band. The fact that it's a brass band around it means that it's going to be a valuable stump. And so nobody's going to destroy it. It's also going to keep it sealed so that moisture doesn't get in and rot it. And so it's going to keep that stump healthy so it can grow up again. But then in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, as I mentioned to you before, there's every indication that the people around Nebuchadnezzar didn't just let the king wander the streets and graze out in the fields where everybody could see him, where the reputation would spread very quickly. Nebuchadnezzar's crazy. We have no king. Instead, it appears that they protected him. And one of the ways that you protect mad people is by putting them in bonds, probably brass bonds. You're going to chain them up in some way. And so the, the idea of there being a brass bond on the stump might also be referring to Nebuchadnezzar being bound up during his madness. Either of those interpretations is okay with me because Daniel doesn't tell us exactly what it means. But this is the interpretation, starting at verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the King. 
that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. Now think about that for a moment because I've said as recently as this past Sunday or the Sunday before. And I keep saying it, but I'm going to say it yet again. If you know anything about God, it's because God revealed it to you. I keep saying Christianity is a revealed religion. If you know anything today about God's word, who God is, what he did in sending his son, what the sacrifice of the son means, if you understand any of that, it's because God revealed it to you. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be so crazy that he's eating grass, growing his hair like feathers and his nails are going to grow out like talons. He's going to be nuts. And yet he's going to come to the conclusion that the most high God rules from heaven. Now, how is he going to reach that conclusion? It's not just that he's a normal human being going about his life, but being blinded to the things of God and not understanding. It's that he's going to be positively insane. And yet he's going to come to the conclusion that the God of heaven rules over all mankind and that God gives the realms of mankind to whomever he wishes. How is he going to come to that conclusion? It has to be the revelation of God. He is incapable of coming to that conclusion on his own. And I argue human beings are incapable of coming to that conclusion on their own. But he's going to come to the conclusion. Until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realms of mankind, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that, it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. So for seven years, he's going to be mad And yet, for some reason, put it this way, I'm very happy here at at GCA because there's there's nobody waiting in the wings for me to die so they can take over. Right? Right. 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 Okay. I was just checking. But in the political world, there are always a line of people waiting for anybody who has the power to fall from grace, to get sick, to be incapacitated, anything so that they can usurp the power to themselves. That's how it has always worked. That's why we read about so many kings, not only in the Bible, but kings in the history of the world that are killed by their own children because their children can't wait to get their hands on the power. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has huge power, mammoth power. And do you think, if he was mad for seven years, that there aren't legions of people waiting around who would love to have that power, who would love to take over, who would love to say, well, the king's clearly and obviously mad. He's out in the field eating grass. He's pretty nuts. I think I should rule. So that's why the promise includes there's going to be a stump because it's going to be preserved. Your kingdom is going to be preserved to you because if God did not specifically preserve the kingdom for Nebuchadnezzar, somebody else would take it from Nebuchadnezzar. You don't think if the other surrounding nations that are doing obeisance and paying taxes to Babylon, you don't think they would immediately rebel if they found out Nebuchadnezzar was crazy? Of course they would. So it's going to take God's intervention, again, God's sovereignty. It's going to take God's hand to make sure that even though Nebuchadnezzar's going to be incapacitated for all this period of time, 
his kingdom is still going to be reserved to him so that God can restore him. For what reason? So that he can write this. So that he can say, I'm Nebuchadnezzar, I rule, and let me tell you what happened to me. So God reserves his kingdom to him. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. So the last thing Daniel says is God has declared this about you. It's going to happen, but take this as a warning. Break off from your sinfulness. Do righteousness. Well, the next thing we read about Nebuchadnezzar is he decided to walk around bragging about how great he was. And what's the chief sin all the way through the Bible? I've said it enough times, you should all know it by heart. What's Pride. the chief sin all the way through the Bible? Pride. Pride. Arrogance. Self-sufficiency. And so here Daniel's saying, break off from your sinfulness. Break off from that pride, that arrogance. But here's what happens. Verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, one year later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great? Look at the next phrase which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Big mistake. Especially if you know God's out to get you. Especially if you've been warned about that pride thing. And you've got to know that after a year, Nebuchadnezzar was probably thinking, well, I guess that's not going to happen. Maybe Daniel made a mistake. Do you know why it took a year for it to happen? Because God's really, really patient. And just because it hasn't happened yet, it doesn't mean that the things God declares aren't going to happen. I use that example all the time when talking about God's judgment. The world runs around acting like there's no judgment. There's not going to be any judgment. Just because they can get away with stuff right now. And because they got away with something right now and weren't immediately judged for it, they assume there's no judgment. They go through their whole life, 20, 30, 40 years later, they don't even think about it. The time they did those horrible things in the past, oh, whatever, nothing bad happened to me, nothing bad's going to happen. But God said he's going to judge. Judgment is mine, says the Lord. Which means he's going to judge. The fact that he hasn't judged yet doesn't mean he's not going to. He's told Nebuchadnezzar here, you're going to be judged. Nebuchadnezzar, a year later, is walking around bragging about Babylon the Great, which his own hand built as a royal residence for the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. Me, me, me. And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. Now, by the way, let's talk about Nebuchadnezzar's sovereignty for just a moment. Nebuchadnezzar, as I said, a king of kings, a man who does have the power of life and death, a man who can kill your family and turn your home into a dunghill, a person who can throw people into the fire, out to lions, uh, a man who has that kind of what we would assume is sort of all-controlling power. But you'll notice that Nebuchadnezzar at that time and in that place was the most quote-unquote sovereign of all men on the planet. But there was a sovereignty that superseded his sovereignty. There was a sovereignty that could say to him, your sovereignty is taken away from you. Any sovereignty you have, any power you have, any authority you have, any kingship you have is a gift from God. And God can take it away from you like that. How many kings, how many presidents, how many rulers of this world were right in the zenith of their power when they died? 
and they had no power to stop it. But God, who's in charge of how long people live and die, can make people die, and their, their power at that moment, their earthly power, their kingship power at that moment of death is non-existent then. They got nothing. And then they stand before the one who has all the power, who has all the sovereignty. So no matter how big you get, no matter how much authority or how much money you may have in this world, remember that there is always a sovereignty that supersedes whatever it is you think you've got. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He went right straight from, I'm great Nebuchadnezzar, I've built all this for my power and my glory. He went straight from that to stone cold crazy with no do not pass go, you know, do not collect $200. He went right from leader of the world to nothing, to eating grass, to crazy. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. The same way that he went from leader of the world to crazy after the exact time period had passed that God said he was going to be crazy, suddenly his reason was restored to him. And what did he do? He looked to heaven and he saw the God, he blessed the Most High and he praised and he honored him who lives forever. Now he's about to make a statement that is one of the most well-known statements in the Old Testament. It's one of the high points of the book of Daniel. This statement is a, an absolute declaration of what God is like. And as I've said, I think a couple times tonight, people pass over this passage. People don't like to read this passage in any church that starts with the free will of mankind or starts with a feel-good message that makes you feel good about you. They can't read this passage for what it says. They have to either ignore it or dumb it down somehow so that it doesn't say what it says. But it is an absolute declaration of God's complete and utter sovereignty over the events of this planet. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. We read that at the beginning of the chapter. Now we know where he's getting it from. Now we know why he's making this declaration. Because God brought him to the point of insanity to teach him this lesson. And restored his mind so that he would understand that the dominion of God is an everlasting dominion. What does the word dominion mean? What does it mean to dominate? To rule over. Yeah, to rule over. To have absolute authority over. When you dominate anything... It has no power over you in the uh, exercise of your power over it. 
He has absolute domination. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And I love this next verse. I have preached entire messages on this next verse. Because human beings, chief problem, as we already agreed, is pride. And our pride comes from the fact that we just like ourselves too much. We're very enamored with us. And so God says of us, and this is important to our biblical uh, anthropology. This is important to understanding how God sees us. Verse 35 says, and all the inhabitants of the earth, that's all of them, all together, all humanity, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Nothing, because there is no inhabitant of the earth whose power is anywhere near God's power. Human, quote unquote, sovereignty can't compare to God's sovereignty. The most glorious of men, the most powerful and well-respected and well-complimented men on the planet get sick and die. And yet God endures forever and has all the power, has all the sovereignty and all the dominion. That's why he said to Job, do what I do. Put yourself on a throne. Make the high and mighty of the world humble them before you. When you can start doing things like that, then I'll admit that maybe you're something. But you can't do the least thing I can do. I can set myself up in majesty and splendor. You can't do that. I was going to make a comment about the fact that I can feel my own aging and decay. But then I realized that everybody in the room can feel that, not my decay. I mean, everybody in the room can feel their individual aging and decay. And if you don't feel it, uh, wait a little longer till you're older. And you'll feel it. Here, I'll ask you a question. April, a couple days ago when you were so sick, did you feel pretty powerful? Did you feel like you had the world by the tail? Going to get up and get some stuff done? Look out, world, here I come. Don't tell me not to stop. I've simply got to. I mean, where you? That was my Barbara Streisand impression. <laughs> Don't let it rain on my parade. You feel pretty good about that? No. All we got to do is come across a little tiny virus that we can't even see without a microscope. And next thing we know, we're flat on our backs. And yet we think we're really something. And God declares that all the inhabitants of the earth, when compared to him, are nothing. And he does according to his will. Okay, what did I say at the beginning of tonight? About an hour ago, I said, my definition of sovereignty is God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whomever he wants, as many times as he wants, wherever and whenever he wants. And he doesn't do what he doesn't want to do. You can't talk him into doing what he doesn't want to do. And he does or doesn't do whatever he wants to or doesn't want to do any time, any place, all the time. And you have no say in it. Well, that's just a long version of he does according to his will. He does according to his will. He decides. Now, this can also take us, and we don't have time for it tonight, but this can take us into a conversation about free will. I argue that God is the only entity in the entire universe who has a truly, genuinely unencumbered free will. And that all human beings and all angelic beings, and all demonic beings have to conform their will to his will because he supersedes and overrides all other wills. Here, we're going to pick on April again. April, so you were sick a couple days ago, right? Yeah, really sick, bad sick, right? Yeah, why didn't you just will to be well? Sure you wish you could have. We all wish we could just will to not be sick. And yet we can't. So really, how much is your will worth? Because you can just be going through your life, doing your thing, 
taking care of kids and doing your job, and all of a sudden, here comes a virus you didn't even see coming, and next thing you know, you're incapable of moving and you want to die, and you feel awful. I said, and you want to die, and April nodded her head like, yes, <laughs> yeah. And you don't have the ability to will to be well because your will is severely bound by your incapability. God has endless capability. God has infinite capability. Therefore, God can always do his will, which is why he can heal people when he wants to. He's not afraid of viruses, blind eyes, lame. He can even raise the dead because he can do whatever he wants. We can't. He can. For all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will. But does he only do according to his will in a few places? Maybe just a few in limited places? Aren't there some places where human autonomy kicks in? Aren't there some areas of life where we get to choose? He does according to his will in the host of heaven. Some of your translations, I think, will say armies of heaven. In all the heavenly realm, he does his will. That means every angelic being, every holy watcher, every, every angel, every seraphim around his throne must do his will. They have to bend their will to conform it to his will. He does according to his will in the armies of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth. Who's that? Us. I feel confident that everybody in this room tonight lives on earth. That means you're an inhabitant of the earth. And that means he does everything according to his own will wherever you are. If you're on this planet, he's doing his will. Okay, now that's both a tad frightening, but it's also really, really comforting. Because sometimes things are going to happen in your life that you would rather not have happen, like you get sick from a virus. But it's really comforting to know that it's God's will that you go through this. It's God's purpose and will for you at this moment to endure this thing. I've said so, so, so many times, but I'm going to say it again. God is too holy not to do that which brings him the greatest glory. And he loves you too much not to do that that is for your greatest good. And that's why Paul could write, all things work together for good. Oh, when you're sick and laying on your, on your deathbed, you're thinking, well, this isn't real good. But it is. It's for your ultimate good. All things are working together for your good to those who love God according to his will, his purposes. So he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one, the King James says, can stay his hand. The NASB says can ward off his hand. Nobody can say to him, what are you doing? What have you done? What are you doing in the future? What are you doing right now? Nobody can say that because God is going to do what God is determined to do. And you don't get an opinion in it. For instance... He created the worlds. We talked this past Sunday about how he spoke light into people. The very same one who said, let there be light, and there was light in the cosmos, in the universe. That same God spoke light into your heart. Okay, now when he spoke, let there be light, and then there was light in the universe, and then he made the sun and the moon, and he made the planets. Did he check with anybody? He did exactly what he wanted to do. Why did he make creation? Well, he wanted to. Why did he make you? Because he wanted to. Why did he make you like this? Because he wanted to. Why does he take you through the things he takes you through? Because he wants to. 
He does everything according to his good pleasure. That's even more difficult because when you're going through the hard times, it's hard to imagine that this is actually what pleases God. It's his good pleasure to take you through that. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stop his hand and no one can say, what have you done? Very next line. And at that time, my reason returned to me. So Nebuchadnezzar did not understand God's absolute sovereignty until God revealed it to him and gave him back his reason. He didn't know it when he was insane. When his reason came back, he knew that God was sovereign. And I made a joke however many years ago, up at Main Street. It was one of the first times that I preached up at Main Street for the Sovereign Grace Conference. And I quoted that verse. And I said, that shows me that if you don't think God is sovereign, you're insane. Only insane people deny that God is absolutely sovereign. That's crazy talk. Especially people who read the Bible and come away with God's not sovereign. Come away with men are in charge. Come away with your idea and your will and up, up, up with people. And they come away with all that. Hey, at least I didn't sing a Streisand song. They're just, they're so... Well, insane. There's no other word for it. Because the words on the page tell you God is absolutely sovereign. God's definition of himself is I am absolutely sovereign. God explains himself as I am absolutely sovereign. And then people come away with men are absolutely sovereign. That's insane. That's crazy talk. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was crazy. And his reason, his sanity was restored when he came to recognize that the God of heaven does whatever the God of heaven wants to do among the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And there's nobody that can stop his hand or ask him what he's doing. He does whatever he wants. Okay, so have you ever been in a circumstance in this life that you would really rather not go through? You ever heard yourself asking God, what is this about? Why am I going through this? The answer is right here. You can't stop his hand and you can't ask him, what are you doing? Because he's going to do what he's going to do. Years ago, when we were out in California, Tom and I, the preacher out there used to say that uh, after a while we would get tired of banging our head against the brick wall of God. I will now add to that phrase and say, after a while we get tired of banging our head against the brick wall of God's sovereignty. The, the smarter thing to do is just to avoid the wall altogether so that you don't have to keep running into it or at least recognize where the wall is. Well, that'll save you a whole lot of headaches as you keep running smack dab into the wall of God's absolute sovereignty. Instead, just admit that he is sovereign and live your life like he is sovereign and acquiesce to him in all things and admit to him in humility that he's in control of your life and it just goes better. You quit banging your head and getting headaches from it. You quit running into that brick wall at full speed. Instead, you just recognize God is in charge. I am his. Well, that's it. I am his. I'm his person. I'm his believer. I'm his saint. And whatever he chooses to do with me is fair game because it's up to him. And it's just not up to me. Anyway, at that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and my splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor 
the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Once you meet a God like that, you better praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven. But look at that last phrase, because all his works are true, and importantly, his ways are just. We're just so quick to question God. When he takes us through hardships or difficulties or takes away one of our loved ones or there's sickness that we can't explain and it's hard to endure. And, and yet his ways and his works are true and just. He knows what he's doing. Which is why I keep saying you'll probably be the rest of eternity praising and worshiping God for the things you complained about today. The things that seemed hard today are going to redound to his glory in eternity. And as hard as it may be in this life, when you get into heaven, you'll look at him and say, it was worth it. It was all worth it. Your plan, good plan. Whatever you had to do, just do it. Because the end result is your glorification. So, that's chapter 4 of Daniel. And you can see why our Arminian friends sort of avoid what it actually says. They try to dumb it down. They try to change the meaning. But it still says what it says. And it has said it for over 2,600 years now. Those words have stood. That God is absolutely sovereign. He does whatever he wants with whoever he wants, anytime he wants, wherever he wants. And you can't stop him and you can't ask him about it. Because he's going to do what he's going to do. And that is absolute sovereignty. And that's why here at GCA we keep saying, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. We keep saying that because the Bible keeps saying that. Got it? Got it, sir. All right. Questions? A couple of comments. A couple of comments. One of the things that intrigues me about this passage is when Nebuchadnezzar in, in verse 34 says, I praise and honor him who lives forever. And I think back to how he was addressed, even in this book. O king, live forever. Yeah. Um, he knew he wasn't going to live forever. So did they. But that's how oriental potentates were yeah. frequently addressed. Yeah. Absolutely. And secondly, I think back to the fact that after Daniel interpreted his first dream, he was made ruler of the province of Babylon. And he was made chief of all the magicians and soothsayers and counselors and everybody. So he was in a position of authority, which I think God may have used to protect Nebuchadnezzar from being taken out. Could be. Because Daniel knew mm -hmm. he was coming back. Right. And um, as ruler of the province of Babylon, even though that wasn't the whole Babylonian Empire, he had a lot of resources to protect the king in this period he knew would be temporary. That's right. And in, when it says that all of his counselors and lords sought him out, doesn't say Daniel was there, but I bet he was. Well, we know he was still there because as we continue reading, we're now going to go into Belshazzar, who is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and then we're going to get all the way into the time of Darius the Mede being in Babylon. Daniel's still there. So, yeah, he was absolutely there. What was the quote a couple months ago at men's meeting that flashed through my head when I was talking about... Uh, it is comforting to know that God in his sovereignty is taking us through what we are going through. You mentioned a quote a couple weeks ago, well, several weeks ago, from John Calvin as he was laying on his bed and he said, God is crushing me. What was that quote? Do you remember? I do not. Okay, good. I'm glad I brought it up. <laughs> it was something on the order of God is crushing me because he had terrible yes, headaches. Yes, I was, yes because he, he did suffer a lot but then he said, but I take comfort in the fact that it is God that is crushing me. Yeah. And I thought that was a poignant statement. Back when you knew it. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So. As I said, I have slept. <laughs> <laughs> All right, anything else? So then when it says, like, the account, the account for nothing, yeah. is there something about that Hebrew word account? I mean, it doesn't mean that we're worthless. No. Right. In the matter of sovereignty, power, who is in control, men are counted as nothing. God does whatever God wants to do all the time, and men don't get to do what they want to do. But let me balance it with this, and I'm glad you asked. The highest price that was ever paid for anything ever was when Christ made himself the propitiatory price to satisfy God and to purchase a people. That's why the word redeem is used so often, that he buys, he purchases, he, he redeems a people for God, and he did it with the price of his own blood. That makes us awfully valuable. So we are valuable to God and his glory in Christ, but as far as just being human beings, we got nothing. So it's, it's a reference to our authority or yeah. ability. Right, absolutely. Not intrinsic worth. Right, not intrinsic worth. Otherwise, why would God have made us in the first place? Mm -hmm. After his own image, there'd be no point to that. But when it comes to who's in control, we got nothing. The best we can do is get sick, get old, and die. That, that's, that's all we got. Right? Yes. Okay. Good question. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.